Okay, so here's one from it is Elizabeth, and it's not anonymous. Uh, this is probably an unanswerable question, but here it goes. Okay, if it's probably, the chances are. <laughs> but let's kind of pretend that it's not unanswerable, including particularly by me. In the Mahayana worldview, how did ignorance and delusion occur in the first place? What a good Abrahamic question. <laughs> Who is this great God delusion? You know, the, the delusion God that, you know, got us sucked into this. Well, of course, the, the Buddhist answer is there, there is no first place. There is no first place. There was no beginning to samsara. Um, but then one can easily draw the conclusion, I think many people do, okay, if there's no beginning, that means we have an, an eternity of past lives, an infinity of past lives. I mean, if there's no beginning, then it's infinity, right? That means I don't have a billion or a trillion or a, or a Google of them. I have infinite number of less. Well, you start following that one literally, if we really mean it. You've had an infinite number of times. This, you meant, this means it's difficult to achieve shamatha, but it's not infinitely difficult. This means you've achieved shamatha an infinite number of times. This means that you've met people like the Dalai Lama, and your other lamas, fine teachers you've had, Theravada teacher, an infinite number of times. Ah, this means an infinite number of times you've wished to achieve bodhicitta, and you've failed an infinite number of times. <laughs> if you haven't achieved it already, I don't want to be too presumptuous here, maybe you realize that I'm in the dark. After a while, this sounds pretty discouraging. You know, if I've had an infinite number of cracks at it, I mean, you know, one, one lifetime out of a trillion, 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 trillion still means an infinite number of them, if you've had an infinite number. So I don't go there. I, don't, I think this is too literal. I think it's, from the Buddhist perspective, flat out wrong to say, oh, well, it was a long time ago. But some big nasty god just started delusion. Or we, we are all Buddhas, and then we just got bored of being Buddhas and decided, let's try delusion, shall we? Yeah, let's, let's jump in. <laughs> oh, I don't like it, I don't like it. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> so, <clears throat> so to posit a beginning of somebody, you know, some enlightened being just getting bored of being enlightened and starting to become deluded doesn't make any sense. But then literally, flat out literal reading, we've had an infinite number of chances to practice Dharma and did practice Dharma, not only had the chances, but did. We've had an infinite number of lifetimes where we spent 60, 60 years in retreat, practicing at least 18 hours a day. What are your chances this time? <laughs> what are the odds? I think it's one over infinity. And that's just, why don't we just go eat ice cream? Because the chances of getting some ice cream there are really high, whereas if our chances of achieving enlightenment are one over infinity, I'd rather go for an ice cream. At least, you know, it tastes good. So, neither one nor the other. How can we make sense of it? I don't think a flat reading will work either way. There was absolutely a beginning, there was, there was absolutely no beginning, therefore infinity. I don't see either one makes any sense. Now, I think, believe it was Kant addressing this kind of issue, referred to this as an antimony. Antimony. Antimony, I think it's the right pronunciation. That is just one of those fundamentally unknowables. 
whatever, whatever you come up with, infinite number, beginning, whatever, does not compute, does not compute, can't answer it. The conceptual mind cannot write, wrap its mind around it. So that's an easy way out, and that's why you suggested this might be unanswerable. But I'll go ahead and jump in anyway. You know me. <laughs> I see thin ice and I say, let me at it. <laughs> Where can I find thinner ice? <laughs> and hopefully really ice cold water beneath. Let's just jump in. Um, when you're practicing shamatha, and suddenly you find yourself completely lost in some obsessive, compulsive, delusional stream of thought. When did it begin? I mean, exactly. You know it didn't begin a hundred years ago, but actually from within the context, within the context, as you're streaming along, not when you wake up, because then you might say, okay, well, sometime between five and ten seconds ago. Fair enough, but that's from having awakened out of that stream of namdo, that stream of obsessive compulsive thinking. But within the thought, when you're caught up in the thought, you're still in it. When did it begin? It began in a moment of unknowing. Because none of us voluntarily launched an involuntary thought. That's a tautology. But it doesn't happen knowingly. Right? So from within it, you can't trace it back to its beginning. You can get close. That is, you can, you can say, well, I can remember this far back. But what do you do then? I can't remember what came before then. Because you won't remember the first moment within it. You won't remember, oh yeah, that was the very first moment when I slipped out. I doubted. So the thought from within it is beginningless. Not that it went on forever, of course not. Or that it, you know, it's been, been going on forever. But from within that little mini-cosm of a thought, no identical beginning because it began in ignorance. It began in ignorance and slipped into delusion. And that's why it's called obsessive-compulsive delusional disorder, because we are mistaking the thought for the referent of the thought. So there's one. Now let's take, now if that's the mini-cosm, maybe let's say the microcosm is a little bit bigger, whichever, in the midst of a non-lucid dream, in the midst of a non-lucid dream, you haven't become lucid yet. Within, in the midst of, from within the context of a non-lucid dream, when exactly did it begin? And you might be able, within the dream, not knowing you're dreaming, if somebody comes up and said, what happened a little while ago? How did you get here? I don't remember meeting you here. This is all taking place in the dream. But imagine comes somebody says, Elizabeth, how did you get here? You're in my home. Maybe, you know, maybe it's some home in... Hampstead, Elizabeth, how did you get in here? Where did you come from? It's nice to see you, but how did you get in? I, I didn't give you a key. And then you trace back. I don't know. Have you been here forever? No. Well, when, when did you enter? When did you come? I don't know. Because the moment I arrived, I didn't know what was going on. And then I became deluded. Right? Now, one of my favorite parables, it's from the book, A Spacious Path to Freedom. I love this parable. 
It's, a, it's very much, very similar to the Christian parable of the, um, uh, the son, the, which son? Starts with a P. The, the prodigal. prodigal son, thank you. The prodigal son, very similar to the Christian parable of the prodigal son, but with a twist. And that is, the story goes like this. There was once a young prince, young prince, and he was young and he was foolish. But he was the crown prince. He was destined for the throne. And one day he went out to watch a great spectacle, uh, like, like an illusionist, like nowadays it would be David Copperfield or some great, but it would be a magician, great illusionist. They just create, could create these fantastic apparitions. And he went out and because he wanted entertainment, of course, he's a young man and he's foolish. And he goes out and he, he just becomes totally engrossed in this apparitional display of illusions. He's just whoa, totally immersed in it, gets lost in it. And finally the show's over. And then he looks around and he's a prince, he came with his entourage. But somehow he got separated from them like the sheep who comes separated from its flock, blade by blade. He just was, thought maybe, that maybe it was a bit of a moving show, and he followed and followed, and somehow he got separated from his entourage. And suddenly the show's over, and he's totally on his own. And he's completely disoriented. He got so immersed in this enchanting display that he's just nonplussed. He's kind of like, Amnesiac has become amnesiac. And he's starting to get hungry. And he's just lost his memory. And so he gets hungry and he finds some beg he sees some beggars over there going for alms. And he, he joins them. I'm hungry too. He's got really nice clothes, but yeah, but I got no food. You want, you want this? And he starts maybe giving away some of his clothes. I give you this for a bowl of rice and some beans. And then after a while, he's given off the good pieces of clothing and he's basically reduced to rags and he's just joined this bag of, band of beggars. And then just, he's just completely, now he's just become a beggar. As far as he knows, this is it. Have been a beggar, am a beggar, will be a beggar. Roving around, roving around. In the meantime, his father, the palace, their terribly upset, concerned. What's happened to the crown prince? How did we lose him? Where's he gone? Where's he gone? Search parties go out, no sign of crown prince. And so years go by. The kingdom is really in a very precarious state now. No crown prince. That's not good for a kingdom. In the meantime, the prince has no notion he's a prince. He's just a beggar. He gets into the stride. He learns how to beggar, beg. He becomes a professional beggar. Looks like a beggar. Acts like a beggar. Thinks he's a beggar for very good reason. Until eventually the beggar comes in his peregrinations. He's wandering around. He comes to the, to the great gate of his previous home. The princely estate. He thought, ah, they'll probably have a good meal. So he comes knocking at the door. The lowly beggar. Could you spare a little bit of food? Well, the man who comes to the door is one of the chief ministers, very high in the government, who is a very, very close companion, mentor, tutor for the prince. And, and the prince comes to the door, the minister that recognizes him, recognizes him immediately. 
And he says, you've come back. You've come back. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, prince. And the beggar says, what? What? Hey, I'm no, I'm no, I, just, I just wanted a bowl of food. I'm not prince. Hey, quit messing around. Quit trying to mess with my head. That's what we say nowadays. Don't mess with my head. You're joking me. If you don't want to give me any food, just say so. But don't lay this prince stuff on me. I just wanted some food. Is that too much to ask? Don't be, you're the prince. I'm not a prince. I'm a beggar. What? What's princely about me? But the, wise, the minister is wise. And he recognizes, oh, okay. This young man's an amnesiac. He's forgotten who he is. So he invites him in and says, come on, come on, I'll, I'll give you some food. Come on, but come, come in. Let's talk for a little while. And he starts posing questions to him. He says, ah, oh, so you're a beggar. Very, very good. How long have you been a beggar? He says, oh, for years, years, years. Been a beggar my whole life, as far as I know. Really? Oh, interesting. Who are your parents? Oh, beggar man, who are your parents? Who are your beggar parents? Where were you born? Where did you live as a child? Where did you come from? And the beggar prince knows that these are questions he should be able to answer. I mean, your parents, where you grew, where you grew up, where you're born. Not exactly mystical questions. And so he gets one question after another, who are your parents? And he tries to trace back. I don't recall any parents. Where did you spend your childhood? I should be able to remember that. I can't. Where were you born? I should at least know that. Not a clue. And he's probed into his own origins, where he came from. He broke through his amnesia. In an instant, he recognized that he was a prince and he was enthroned. I love that story. So the minister was, of course, a guru, encouraging us to look within and ask, who do you think you are? Where did you come from? Where did your samsara begin? Where did it begin? How did it begin? Who do you really think you are? Tell us where you came from. And that's Vipassana. It's looking into the very origins of the mind and seeing the origin is empty. Looking into the very nature, the location of your mind, seeing it has none. Investigating where does your mind go? You see, it doesn't go anywhere. Ah, your mind is empty. Your samsaric mind that is not a Buddha mind your samsaric mind that seems so profoundly afflicted and non-Buddha, suffering, afflicted, poor sentient being mind, empty. And in realizing the emptiness of your own mind, you may open the door to realizing who you actually are. So samsara has no beginning. So there's this phrase, until all sentient beings are free from suffering, also, also seems to imply an end, no matter how far off. Could you perhaps tell us more about what the Kala Chakra says about this? Well, the Kala Chakra, the Dzogchen, pretty much of the same view. His Holiness Dalai Lama has been asked, um, will there come a time when all sentient beings have achieved enlightenment? And all that he's been able to say and I think he speaks really, he's a great, he is truly a great scholar. Uh, he says, all that we can say from the Mahayana perspective is that every sentient being throughout space, and bear in mind, Buddhist space is 
at least as big as the space of modern cosmology, uh, that every sentient being throughout space has a Buddha nature. Which is to say, everyone has the, every, every single one has the capacity to realize perfect enlightenment. It's simply a matter of the cause and conditions coming together. That we can say. Everyone has the... But will it happen? Can we say with certitude that there will come a time, some not infinitely long time away, when all sentient beings actually have achieved enlightenment? And the answer is, we don't know. All we can say is everyone has the potential. Whether they manifest the potential, whether they realize their full potential, well, that's up to them. Whether they do it, well, that's up to them. And so, uh, I heard something of this sort oh, for, during the first year or so when I was studying with Gishengan Taiki. I look over at Mervyn because we studied with him oh, during the same period. I heard about this. And uh, I had to ask this question. I was, well, you can judge for yourself. The only way to achieve, and this is classic Mahayana principle that I'm about to say, the only way to achieve perfect enlightenment is out of a selfless, out of bodhicitta, out of a selfless and compassionate yearning to be of greatest possible service to all of the sentient beings. You can't do it. You cannot achieve, in the Mayana view, you simply cannot achieve perfect enlightenment just for, your, for, your, for yourself. That's just not possible. Right? And so, of course, this thought just had to come to mind. If you're the... <laughs> If you're the dumbest sentient being in the universe, <laughs> the dumbest one in the whole universe, and that is the last one to achieve enlightenment. <laughs> All other sentient beings have finished. They're enjoying immutable bliss. <laughs> and you're the last one. <laughs> and there's just no one else to achieve enlightenment for. Then how can that poor last person achieve enlightenment? <laughs> Because you're the only one left. <laughs> so this is a good 22-year-old question. And of course, I had to ask it. And Gishingan Taigi, he, I never, I don't know anybody who ever posed a question to him about Buddha Dharma that he couldn't answer. And answer with, you know, with real insight and wisdom. Fantastic teacher. So I came up with this one. How can the last sentient being in the universe achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings who don't exist? <laughs> And he came back with the answer. I think it's the only possible answer. And then he said, all the Buddhas who preceded you would manifest as if they were sentient beings. And so you'd be feeling compassion for them. They'd be having physical problems and economic and financial and psychological and so forth. And you'd see this world of suffering sentient beings and say, for the sake of all these beings, I shall achieve enlightenment. And then you'll achieve enlightenment. And only after you'd achieved enlightenment would you see that they all suckered you. <laughs> that there's nobody, nothing for you to do at all. You are the last one. And you get the cosmic booby prize of being the dumbest pers person in the universe. <laughs> and of course, once I, I heard about that, I thought, oh my goodness, maybe I'm it. <laughs> It's at least possible, you know, <laughs> that everybody around me is just waiting. <laughs> what is he going to achieve finally? <laughs> so, you know, our job is finished. <laughs> so, you can see what a deep thinker I am, yes. 